This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Film Show. It is Friday, June 9th, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news and a little bit of what we've been watching. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. All right, Jacob, before we begin, we have a cool announcement. We are giving away five Blu-ray copies of Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves. Uh, To win, all you have to do is follow Slash Film on Twitter and Uh, retweet the tweet that I've linked in the show notes. So it's very easy to do. And you have until June 14th at essentially midnight to win. And this contest is open to U.S. residents only. Um, I enjoyed this movie quite a bit, Jacob, like a surprising amount. And I know that this, I think this is probably like one of your favorite movies of the year so far, right? Yeah, I love this movie. I saw it South by Southwest where I raved about it. I wrote a review on Slash Film. And I saw it again in theaters when it opened. Uh, now I have the 4K Blu-ray myself, and I've watched it again. <laughs> I, I, it's just to me like an infinitely pleasurable movie. Uh, I in a, in a summer where so many movies are like going really big and disappointing. Uh, like for example, I, I I watched a major new release uh, yesterday that we'll talk about shortly, where it kind of went in one ear and out the other. You know, in one eye and out the other. Uh, Honor Among Thieves is a movie that's kind of stuck with me. I think it's just like. Everything about that movie just clicks and works, and I wish it made more money, and I hope people find it on video. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a, a really good way, a very easy way to do that is to uh, to win these five Blu-ray copies that we're giving away. So check that out in the show notes for more information there. Uh, let's get into the news. There's two news items that I thought might be worth discussion. Um, the first one is that Andy Muschietti, who directed the It movies and Mama and most re- uh, recently directed The Flash, is now being eyed to direct... Uh, what is being called The Brave and the Bold, which is one of DC's new upcoming movies involving Batman. Um, I mean, I don't really know. There's not a ton to say here, Jacob. It's just interesting that um, that DC is like looking ahead and, and looking inward to, uh, to pick from, you know, I, I, that strikes me as like a very Disney thing of like, you know, establishing a roster of talent that they go back to time and time and time again. Um, 
but uh, but yeah, what, what do you make of like Muschietti moving from the world of the Flash, which has a couple of Batman in it, into something that is like more um, explicitly Batman related? Uh, a few things. One, I think it's really interesting that uh, Warner Brothers wants to stay in the Muschietti business. He directed, you know, uh, It and It Chapter Two before he made the Flash, and to me, it's one of those cases where you know I always find it interesting when a studio latched onto a filmmaker like this, where they always say. You know, we're happy with you. We like working with you. It's a vote of confidence. I mean, it chapter two was not nearly as good of a film or you know as profitable as the first one was. I mean, it was a hit, but it wasn't you know the smash the first one was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by all accounts, you know, the Flash, depending who talked to each other, a very good movie or a pretty good movie. And it seems that Warner Brothers is happy working with them. They're happy to stay in the Andy Muschietti business, whether it's a horror film or a superhero movie. And to me, I'm really curious to see, you know, how the Muschietti Warner Brothers relationship unfolds. Will this be like a life, a lifelong thing, like Clint Eastwood and Warner Brothers were for decades, mm-hmm. or like you know, I always think about how Christopher Nolan and WB were seemingly attached to hip until they broke up, and he went to the Universal with Oppenheimer. So I'm curious. I'm really curious to see how this plays out, especially if uh, how Muschietti will you know fare in the uh, James Gunn reboot world, mm-hmm. because. You know, it, it would have been very, very easy for James Gunn to say, now nah, we want to kind of have a fresh start, you know, leave everything behind. But no, him and Warner Brothers, you know, clearly have Muschietti on the mind. They're happy with the Flash. They're happy with his work. Uh, which brings me to the the point I wanted to make, which is, uh, Ben, how familiar are you with The Brave and the Bold? Because uh, when, when they announced this movie as part of the, you know, initial wave of ideas that was being floated for the first, you know, post-James Gunn series of movies, they tease some of the plot elements. Are you familiar with, with, with what they're doing here? I mean, just on the most basic level, I, I have never read uh, Brave and the Bold comics. I know that there was an animated show called Batman the Brave and the Bold that I think got into this a little bit, but my understanding is that um, Batman's uh, biological son, Damian Wayne, becomes Robin in that story, and that these uh, the Brave and the Bold movie is going to include elements of the Bat family, which is like, Barbara Gordon slash Batgirl or Dick Grayson slash Nightwing, you know, some of these other characters that have been like ancillary characters surrounding, you know, the supporting cast of, of the Batman story, so to speak. So um, what's your relationship to the Brave and the Bold, Jacob? Uh, the Brave and the Bold, the title has been used pretty interchangeably over the years, depending on, you know, <laughs> whenever DC needs to pump out a new Batman title and Batman's already taken or Detective Comics is already taken. So I have no, you know, real relationship with the title Brave and the Bold, but I do have a bit of a relationship with Damian Wayne, a character who is relatively young in the grand scheme of DC Comics. I want to say he's maybe around for 15 years-ish. Uh, and as you said, he's uh, Bruce Wayne's biological son raised by a family of assassins to be a ice-cold killer. So when he's essentially dropped onto Batman's doorstep as a teen, Batman has to essentially deprogram his vicious, murderous son into being a... You know, because Batman himself doesn't kill. And mm-hmm. essentially has it's about this relationship between a father and a son where the son has to, uh, the son has very different values than the father, despite being, you know, a skilled warrior. He's very, very different. And the Damian Wayne, Bruce Wayne relationship uh, has been like, with the right writers, has been an incredible thing to watch. It's an incredibly fun relationship. So I'm really curious here. I'm really curious to see that, like, I haven't seen The Flash yet. So my vision of Muschietti is very much a, you know, it's a horror guy. Whereas Damian Wayne's stories, uh, because of the very the father son dynamic, because of the uh, the Bat family is inherently goofy. I mm. love the Bat family. I love that Batman, the quintessential loner, 
essentially built up this family around him, all of whom support him and have his back. And he, even when he maybe doesn't want it, he always has people who are there to tell him he's not alone. And that to me is an element of Batman that hasn't been explored on the big screen, which is why I'm really excited for this concept. So having seen the Flash, Ben, do you think that a goofier, like, father-son, you know, family story, not not family, like, in terms of, like, PG, but in terms of a story about a family, mm-hmm. something Muschietti can pull off? Yeah, I think so. And I think um, Bill Bria, who wrote the article for us, um, drew a really, uh, I thought, astute observation um, from Muschietti's other movies. He was talking about the sort of sprawling ensemble cast of It and It Chapter 2, and actually, for that matter, The Flash, which has you know, multiple Batman, multiple versions of the Flash. And, you know, there's, there's a Supergirl character that's involved. And just the idea of like um, Muschietti being a guy who can wrangle, you know, these big ensemble casts in these, you know, uh, spectacle sort of big budget studio um, blockbuster landscape kind of things being, you know, he's already proven that he's able to do that and, and do it in a way that um, has re- resulted in things that are pretty entertaining so far. So the idea of like, applying that uh, skill set to what we assume will be a, a fairly sprawling cast of, you know, bat family members, like you're talking about, uh, makes a lot of sense just on like a practical level for him. So um, it almost reminds me of like how Joss Whedon was, was chosen to direct the Avengers because he was so good at, you know, stuff like Firefly and, and stories like that, you know, with that, that same sort of, um, you know, different character types, butting heads and being able to actually like uh, frame all of that stuff in an interesting way. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about this. I, I, like I said, I'm, I'm, I've never really been fully tapped into that world, but I'm definitely curious always about like Batman, this character that, you know, we've seen a billion times in all these different forms, um, any sort of new, uh, dynamic on the screen with a, a movie version of Batman, I'm always going to be interested in. So, um, yeah, curious yeah. to see how this, how this plays out. How is it that I'm not over Batman? I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, there's just like, it doesn't matter who's playing him. It, there's some, there's something just, yeah, like purely uh, timeless about that character that it, it's always just going to be interesting to see. Timeless and flexible because, yeah. you know, Robert Pattinson's Batman, you know, the, the, uh, who will live on his own pocket universe alongside whatever Brave and the Bold is. And it should be confusing. It should be annoying. If it was maybe any other character, I would be actively annoyed. But man, like, Batman is so inherently interesting and a, even like a slightly different take from a slightly different filmmaker radically rewrites how the character can feel and what he can represent. Yeah. So I am all, I'm very excited to see what comes out of this. I mean, I, I, sh- I I'm feeling a lot of Marvel fatigue, um, but somehow some way I am very interested in this uh upcoming wave of dc movies yeah also, for, also so swamp thing's yeah. coming guys swamp thing I, i'm I, i'm ready for that so. <laughs> yeah i i am too really and i think the idea that like this new wave is going to be um you know tied to like james gunn's fresh vision of what the dc mu can be um i think that that sort of freshness is something that like you know I, i've i've loved a lot of the marvel stuff but like it does seem to be getting maybe a bit formulaic, maybe a bit stale in places, in corners, things like that. So, you know, there's always room for them to turn it around. I'm not saying like, oh, Marvel's done or whatever. Like they've got a Blade movie that could potentially uh, open up a whole different corner of the universe and things like that. So um, as long as they keep, you know, sort of pushing the envelope and like making things, um, taking interesting 
like risks with the storytelling and the styles, I'll, I'll still, you know, play along and, and probably continue to be interested in and follow what they're doing. So I'm just, yeah, the, the fact that they've like explicitly said that that's what they're going to be doing under James Gunn and Peter Safran at DC is like, has me excited about DC for the first time in a long time. So, uh, all right, let's, let's talk a little bit. Um, there's probably, again, not much to, to go over here with this next story, but uh, Universal has said that on demand is good for their business. Uh, and that sort of clashes with the, um, the approach and the ideals of several different other major studios right now. So Donna Langley, who's the chairwoman of Universal Films Entertainment Group, recently told the New York Times that Universal sees VOD as, quote, an additive important new revenue source that didn't exist three years ago. It has had a hugely positive impact on our business. Um, that's the end of her quote. I, I'm not sure about that, Jacob, like the fact that VOD didn't exist three years ago. It, I, I'm pretty sure it did. Uh, but the way that Universal has used it in the past three years in the COVID era and, and beyond um, has been different than the other studios because they've been, again, explicit about saying, okay, we are going to basically uh, do like a customized plan here with these movies that we're releasing. We'll, we'll put things out in theaters, see how they do, and then put them on VOD, um, you know, based on those theatrical numbers and how that stuff is working out. So um, do you have any, any thoughts on, on Universal's approach, Jacob? Like, yeah, like I guess three years into this experiment, um, which has completely upended the way that things used to work in the pre-pandemic era. Do you think that, uh, that Universal's plan seems to be working here? I think it works with a front-loaded movie. If a movie makes all of its money in three weeks and they can put it on VOD quickly, like Jace did with uh, Fast X, it was Super Mario Brothers, you know, it's it's fine. But I'm thinking about how, like, Warner Brothers is pivoting back in a pretty major way to trying to uh, embrace theatrical releases because, you know, billion there's no such thing as a billion-dollar streaming movie. You know, no, you're never going to make a billion dollars off of a movie sent straight to streaming, which you mm-hmm. are if you send it straight to theaters. And for Universal, they you know, they have Super Mario Brothers. It's... um. A massive hit. We'll talk, about, now we'll talk about that more in a little bit. Actually, it's on it's on our docket for today, so I don't want to go too deep on that. But I just I think that this makes sense for a front loaded movie. But like, let's say let's pick a different studio. Let's pick A twenty four with everything everywhere all at once. A movie that uh, made a hundred million dollars worldwide, which is you know incredible for a movie of that size. You know, and that's you know before you know swept the Oscars. But mm-hmm. I just a movie like that. Um, if you left for three weeks in theaters and then push, push to VOD, I don't think it has the legs and traction and, you know, cultural touchstone that ends up being, if you do that VOD, I feel like this is a, this is a universal has found a really good system for movies that are big enough that everybody sees them in the opening two weeks. But I think that this is a really flawed way to, if you want to like embrace a mid tier hit or a movie that, you know, you'll need some time to find its audience. In fact, I think in general, the, the days of movies being left, you know, to build buzz, you know, is, I wish they were still here. Like, I'm genuinely wondering, I'm watching, uh, looking forward to seeing the box office and reaction to uh, Talk to Me, the new horror movie from A24 coming out this summer. Because it's, it's a kind of movie that has a good trailer, but it's definitely, you know, it's it, like Hereditary and other A24 horror movies, it's, Kind of when it gets under your skin. It's it's a it's a not a, not the easiest sell in the world, but Midsommar and Hereditary became hits because people started talking about them. And they weren't massive hits, but they were hits for a, a studio of a twenty four size. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that Talk to Me is a hit on VOD. I think it's a hit in theaters and becomes and when people talk about ha, huh, uh, you know, <laughs> because of the, the theatrical experiencing. Oh man, you got to go see this. So yeah, I, I see where you're coming from. I mean, when 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 someone writes that you know the history of 
21st century studio filmmaking, Trolls World Tour needs a chapter. It was the yeah. first movie <laughs> that Universal put right on uh, on the VOD rather than you know sit on it and wait for a theatrical release. But it should be noted that Universal also sat on Minions 2 for like what close to two years after it was finished and then released it to, to a to billion dollar box office uh, so Universal still knows that like certain movies are going to make that billion dollars yeah I just don't think that this is a universal thing oh, it's not it's good for Universal but it's not a universal thing right right, right. um so you know Universal and Warner Brothers seem to be in the very opposite ends of this I'm very curious to see which of them you know does well in the in the in the in let's say the next year or so in terms of which ones uh i don't know i don't i don't want to create like a, a dumb rivalry between the two because I don't, I don't think that exists it's just two different philosophies but i'm curious to see what happens yeah 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 and the minions rise of Gru is an interesting data point because that movie came out last year and like you said performed incredibly well but they actually released it on vod i think it was like 33 days after it premiered in movie theaters but like the Super Mario Brothers movie, I think it stayed in theaters for a long time and people just kept going to see it in theaters. I mean, Mario is like still in theaters right now and it's been on VOD for a little while at this point. So um, the, know, Joker just... keeps, the Joker keeps saying is from parents on social media saying things like, uh, well, nothing new out this week. It's going to go see Super Mario again. Yeah, <laughs> um, which, you know, it's changed a little bit since Spider-Man's down in theaters. There's something, you know, for a, a family audience again, but the fact that there was this drought of family-friendly movies and Super Mario comes out and it's not terrible. Uh, we'll discuss more of that in a second. Uh, I think uh, led to Mario being something that like was already it was already going to be a huge hit, but families were hungry as hell for anything, for an excuse to go to a theater. And, yeah. You know, I, and that's why I think that they're right. VOD after a month for a big hit makes sense, but we're not going to see Super Mario Bros. 2 go straight to VOD first or, or, or you know, day and date with, with theatrical release because can squeeze a cool billion, you know, in, in a month and yeah. then you get them at home. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Is your wallet a little lighter than usual after the holiday season? Consider it money well spent because you deserve to live your best life, and the Chime Checking Account wants to help you live yours to the fullest. A little extra money goes a long way, which is why the Chime Checking Account has tons of benefits that millions of members love, like fee-free overdraft up to $200 for eligible members, no monthly fees, and access to over 60,000 easy-to-find and fee-free ATMs. You even get paid up to two days early with direct deposit, all while managing your money on the go, including sending and receiving money fee-free with friends that aren't even on Chime. Sign up for Chime today for you and your wallet. Get started at Chime.com goals24. That's Chime.com goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Access to direct deposits up to two days early depends on the timing of the submission of the payment file from the payer. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. All right, Jacob, let's get into this other section of the podcast, sort of like a mini water cooler type of vibe here. So uh, what have you been doing recently? I finished my studio space, my uh, upstairs closet adjacent to my uh, media area, my, my, my game room slash room where I watch my movies. Uh, I tore out all the shelves using, I literally had a hammer and crowbar, tore all out, repaired the walls to the best of my abilities, but that was, but didn't do a great job because those would cover them up anyway. I hung uh, sound absorbing 
uh, foam in key areas where sound would bounce. I hung a moving blanket against uh, behind my computer monitor where my voice would also bounce. I have a blanket draped over my desk. And I I'm, I trust, I'm told by people who are listening back to podcasts I'm recording since I finished, that I sound pretty good. The echo that was here before seems to have vanished. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds great, man. And I'm, I'm jealous too, because you have like this dedicated like closet space and I'm in an office that has like, it's, it's practically impossible to, this room is so big there, there, and I have hardwood floors in here. I've put rugs down. I've put things up to try to muffle some of the, the echo in here. And it's just not really, I mean, you can, listeners have complained to me before in the past. So I'm sure that, you know, people can still hear a little bit of that in, in my recording, but yours sounds really great. So uh, congrats on that. I'm excited. I'm, I'm jealous of your space there. Yeah, I put a picture of it on Twitter. It's not pretty. My whole thing was I did, I did a lot of research and I realized I could either hang my sound panels in a way that looked sexy or I could do it in a way where it would be effective. And naturally, I chose effectiveness. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Uh, well, let's get into what we've been watching a little bit. I finished, finally, the TV show Dark, which is on Netflix. Have you seen this, Jacob? Have we talked about this at all? Uh, no. I've, it's been recommended to me a lot. It seems like it's up my alley, but I have not seen a single episode of it. It definitely is up your alley. Um you know, it, th- Jacob, you strike me as a uh, a two pronged viewer. You know, the, there's the the BattleBots sort of reality TV side of you, and then there's like the um, I, I'm curious to dive into something challenging side of you. And and Dark is definitely more on the challenging end because uh, it's a German series. I, I talked about it when I first I think maybe I'd watched the first season, um, but for me, it's it's like a combination of Stranger Things, uh, Stephen King's It lost and twin peaks it's it's all of those things thrown together in in this incredible sci-fi package it's one of the most beautiful shows i've ever seen the cinematography is like incredible the acting is out of this world it's so good uh i'd never really i don't think i'd seen any of these performers before because it's a, a purely german language show i mean you can you can use uh dubs and stuff if you want but i i listen to it in the the German language it was intended to listen to it in and, and just watch it with English subtitles. Um, it, it's a, a tough show to track at times because it's very much about like time travel paradoxes and characters going into alternate dimensions and, and uh, different timelines and things of that sort. And so there's a lot of like uh, repetition and like um, characters double crossing other characters and interacting with future versions of themselves and all sorts of like crazy sci-fi concepts. Um, but I thought it was just really, really well done. And I was very happy with the finale episode, which, you know, two or three episodes away from the very end of the show, my wife and I were like, how on earth are they going to wrap this up? This is like, it's so expansive. There's so many plot threads, um, that they have to address here. And I, I think by and large, they did a, a really good job uh, bringing it all to a, a, a satisfying conclusion. So uh, Dark is streaming on Netflix. Uh, if you care to check that out and, and yeah, Jacob, I would recommend it if you're like, you know, if you if you clear out some space in your uh, watch list and you're looking for something um, that's yeah really beautiful to watch, but also like you're really gonna have to actually pay close attention to be able to track everything that's going on. This is not something that you can watch passively. Uh, I think you you dig it. So yeah, um, I, think, I think I think it's probably time. I mean, I do have a new South Korean reality show I want to watch first, but maybe after that. So okay. <laughs> uh, I also started Never Have I Ever season four, which just came out. I think it was yesterday, maybe late Wednesday. Um, I think we're three episodes in. It's very much more the same, but uh, but 
I, I love that show, so I'm very pleased with more of the same on this on this front. This is um, the final season of the show. Uh, the characters are now seniors in high school, and uh, yeah, it, it's you know I, I haven't really gotten into like the meat of the season yet, but I just wanted to sort of put it on people's radars because I know Brad loves the show as well, um, and I think BJ too. I want to say we we talked about it on an episode of the podcast, but, and, or maybe we just talked about it on Slack. But uh, but yeah, if you guys have not jumped on the never have I ever train. It's, it's one of the funniest high school shows uh, that I've seen. And I think one of the best Netflix originals that they've ever produced. So um, I'm, I'm sad to see it go, but I'm happy that it's back so I can uh, enjoy the, the fourth and final season. Um, and then finally, as you've alluded to a couple times, Jacob, I, I watched the super Mario brothers movie. Um, you said it wasn't terrible. I, I think it was pretty terrible. I, I just, <laughs> I, I have a lot of, um, you know, fond memories of playing Mario games on N64 and, uh, you know, on Switch. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't one of those kids. I, I grew up actually with a Sega Genesis. So I was more like a Sonic kid than a Mario kid. But oh, I, those I, people. Ugh. Yeah, but I played a ton of GameCube in college with my roommates and we played, you know, uh, Mario Kart and Mario Tennis and all, all of the, you know, the classic staples and and um, Smash Brothers and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I have a lot of like fondness for the Mario um, lore, if you, I guess, if you want to call it that. And I just think this movie is like such a missed opportunity. It's gorgeous to look at. That is like undeniable. It's it's really beautifully done um, in terms of the, the visual aesthetic of the movie. Um, but I just think the story is like so pedestrian that I and and like at times just lazy that I was like, ah, man, it's this, a this... bad script. I say yeah. somebody who who thinks the movie is passable and I actually enjoy my time in theaters. It's like it's like ninety minutes long, and as you said, the animation is stunning. Seeing these worlds brought to life is really special. The movie looks incredible. Illumination has. An incredibly talented team of animators and art designers, and I think they do real visual justice to Mario's world and to these characters of a visual POV. Uh, but it is by f- it is one of the laziest scripts I've seen for a major movie in a long time. It's just there's no surprises, there's no nothing interesting with what the characters, the relationships aren't well built out. Um, the one dynamic I did enjoy, I do think that Mario and Luigi uh, uh, have a dynamic bouncing off each other that, that, that I did like. But then we separate them for almost the entire movie. Um, and I, I like Jack Black's Bowser. I think Jack Black's really going for it in a way that uh, Chris Pratt is not <laughs> to, to yeah. drag him through the mud. Uh, but yeah, this is a, it's so nice to look at. It's so pretty. Uh, and I just wish that any of the characters like made interesting choices Yeah, or were yeah. challenged in ways that were, that were riveting. I mean, the problem is that Jack Black is so charismatic as Bowser that, the, that everybody's refusal to even like talk to him. Like no one even like says, Hey, let's talk to Bowser. See if we can work out a deal. It's, it's immediately like, Nope, we got to offend it. from Bowser. It's like, man, Bowser's Bowser's a party. You want to marry Bowser. You like, wh- why are you, why don't you even want to meet this guy? He's the coolest. And that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Yeah. You're, you're saying that the, the movie is setting up him up as a villain, but he's actually like so interesting to you that you, you sort of uh, align yourself with them a little bit, sort of yeah, and uh, like in no- opposition to what the movie wants you to do. And nothing with the writing. It's just Jack Black. It's just Jack Black being an inherently charismatic motherfucker. And that's it. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just like, you know, th- there were so many um, moments that didn't make sense. And like, things where it just felt like 
okay, we're checking the box and we're like doing the fan service referency thing uh, just to, you know, squeeze this in and like, hey, remember this, remember this, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And it just didn't, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, th- I think be, be, because I didn't see this movie when it first came out, I was aware vaguely of the conversation around it, the discourse around it, if you will, uh, right around the time that that it was coming out in theaters. And I, my memory is that a lot of the conversation was like, uh, half of the the people on Twitter being like, this is a kid's movie, ease up, like, you know, give them a break. It doesn't really matter. And then the other half being like, yeah, but we should actually be, you know, the, the bar doesn't have to be this low for kids' movies. And that's where I come down. I, I understand that like this is not made for me anymore, um, which is totally fine. But like, I think kids' movies can have more on their mind than this one does and, and actually be like, yeah, executed on a story level in in a, a more um, in, in a way that that like uh, benefits this franchise too. It's not just like oh, you know, pander to critics or whatever. Like make this intellectual. I'm not I'm not arguing for that. Like you know, better storytelling will help the longevity of this franchise. Like yes, this movie was probably going to make a billion dollars regardless. Like even with a dog shit script, but. Um, but you don't, you know, you can, you can strive to do better. And, and I wonder if there's going to be a behind the scenes thing about the making of this movie and the kind of choices that had to be made and like were forced on the screenwriters um, by the Nintendo corporation, because Nintendo has been famously so um, um, uptight basically about the control of, of their, um, of their baby after the super Mario brothers uh, movie from the, the live action one from the nineties which was like such a gigantic infamous disaster. Um, so I understand Nintendo wanting to like put something out that's safe, but I, I wonder if we're ever going to find out the, um, you know, what the screenwriters would have done or could have done if Nintendo hadn't sort of like imposed certain restrictions on them or if any of that is ever going to come out. So um, I don't want to like completely throw the screenwriters under the bus here because I don't know the concept, you know, the, the context of the, the, um, of the reality of which, you know, in, in which they were working. So um, I'll just say I was disappointed with it, but can I bring up one very silly random thing? I want to see if you agree with me. Yes. I'm not going to talk about the purity of Donkey Kong because there's no such thing as a purity of Donkey Kong. He's barely, he's barely a character, but I guess in my head playing Donkey Kong country and seeing that he wears a tie and he's the older Kong and that just the way he kind of looks, I always in my head, Imagine that Donkey Kong would be a world weary Ron Perlman type, mm, and Seth mm-hmm. Rogen plays him as this like juiced up bro. And I'm not sure how I feel about this. How do you feel about this? Yeah, I, I, that was one of the weirder things where like um, Donkey Kong in this movie is like out there strutting his stuff and kind of like flexing for the crowds. And I'm like, what? What is this? This is not necessarily like the the Donkey Kong that I know, um, but. But yeah, like you, you were kind of getting at, like, I don't really have that much of a relationship with, with Donkey Kong and like the, you know, the, the purity of the Donkey Kong lore. Like, I, I can't tell you who Cranky Kong is other than like his dad in this movie. I don't know if that's like. Very a, annoyingly voiced by Fred Armisen, like a, yeah. a, a character who scratched my eyeballs and ears every time he was on screen. And I love Fred Armisen. It was just like not good voice casting for a, a much of this movie, really. Um And like the idea of like Donkey Kong and Mario bonding over their like daddy troubles and like, oh, my, our, 
we're disappointing our parents and stuff like <laughs> that's not what the, a Mario movie should be. I don't know, man. It just I, I was I was uh, left baffled by a lot a lot of the decisions made in that film. So, all right, let's let's move on. What have you been watching, Jacob? I want to go a little out of order from when I put this down on the dock because I want to go right into an animated movie that I think uh, has an incredible script, even though it's only half a movie, and that is a uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider Verse. I too, so many people have written talked about how this movie looks, about the technology and the creative animation the various animated styles, the art direction. I, I genuinely believe that Across the Spider-Verse uh, belongs in the conversation alongside Toy Story and Snow White and Seven Dwarfs uh, as a movie that fundamentally shifts animation on its axis. And I don't see how things are the same ever again. If, if the first Spider-Verse movie kind of led to um, the new Ninja Turtles movie and, you know, Puss in Boots, uh, The Last Wish, movies that clearly, you know, uh, owe a debt to how the first one looked. I think that Across Spider-Verse I think every single animator at every animation studio watched this movie and says, we can do better. How do we do better? And they, and everybody chases this from now on. Yeah. I strongly believe that this movie's visuals do that. But I will also add that the economy of the script, how many, how much characters, information, humor, and pathos are rung into every single scene and how even at half movie ends of the cliffhanger, I feel like I've watched three movies without ever feeling bogged down. Like, this movie doesn't feel long to me, even though it's half a movie and there's three movies worth of information in it. The economy of storytelling is incredible. It's, it's a screenplay that trusts the audience, that trusts kids, that trusts parents, that just loads, interweaves jokes and exposition and character development in, in ways you, you don't see it coming. You don't, you don't see the setups. You don't see the setups. You, you just see the payoffs and realize, oh my goodness, they set it up and I didn't even see it coming. Mm-hmm. It's such a satisfying piece of storytelling that it makes, you know, the laziness of Mario script stand out even more because I don't think every screenplay is going to be as good as the one for both Spider-Verse movies are. And hopefully the third one will be as well. But it's just to me an an astonishing example of how when you're not dealing with a live action format and you are working with, you know, visuals as handcrafted as an animated movie, not only can you turn those visuals uh, into something we haven't seen before, but tell a story like one we haven't seen before. I don't think a live action movie can, can can tell a story like Spider-Verse does. I think it's impossible. Yeah. But but the but the amount of care and detail put into how the story is told visually uh as well as you know through its characters stands out in a way that like I don't want to repeat myself but I think this is the the biggest advancement for what any movie can be since 95 since Pixar since Toy Story. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're, you're not wrong. Like it just kind of is mind blowing that they were able to, to even do this. Um, I, I, I find myself butting up against the script a little bit more than you did. It sounds like, um, but I, I wonder how much of that will sort of fall away on a second watch. Um, not that like the movie has to be perfect and is like, you know, above reproach or anything, but I, I, I do wonder like, how much of it I was just sort of being pummeled by, by the visuals and, and um, knowing what I'm going to encounter on a rewatch uh, might help shave away some of the, um, the bumps that I felt the, the first time around. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to watch it again, uh, especially because it's the type of movie that like, it's impossible to catch everything the first time around. Um, there's so much going on in the deep, deep background. And I imagine little tiny jokes that like, you know, people will only find, you know, years later or something buried in this movie because there's so much like information crammed into the frame. It's, it's really um, wildly impressive. So, uh, so Jacob, you were mentioning like 
um, the way that it, it weaves character development and jokes and storytelling and setup and payoffs and all that stuff. There's a, a TV show that you've been rewatching that does something similar. Yes, uh, I've been rewatching Community, uh, the NBC show or NBC slash Yahoo Screen show. <laughs> uh, but, but I watched this show live when it first aired up until season six, where I could not get Yahoo Screen to actually play on my computer. So I've never seen the final season. Um, but I watched seasons one through five live, but I have not watched them in a long time. And I, I remember like I watched the first like season or two, I believe, in, like, in college. Uh, like that's, you know, that's a long ago it was. Uh, I, I remember I would, <laughs> I would go get Chinese food. I would sneak the Chinese food into my school's library, which had no food policy. I would rent out one of the little uh, soundproof cubicle spaces for research and work. And I would eat Chinese food. And, uh, and on the, on NBC.com, I would watch The Office, Parks and Rec, uh, 30 Rock, and Community. Um, wow. <laughs> and it's one of the, it's, well, that's because that was like when NBC comedy was like on Thursday nights and it was just like untouchably great. And I still like all I still like all those shows. You know, they've all aged in different ways. Uh, but I would put the first three seasons of Community up against most other TV comedy, and I know that you know it's a, it's a tricky show to talk about because uh, we know no more, know more about Dan Harmon now and how he was not a great leader. He was not somebody who treated his staff with respect, and we now know that his firing after season three was largely deserved. And especially since I think that the reaction to season four, which people uh, trash talked at the time and still do. It's not the best season, but I do think it's a lot better than its reputation suggests. And I think it was the cult-like following that Dana Harmon had at the time has led to this largely inaccurate read on an okay season of TV. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I'm in the middle of season three right now. And I think this is where the show is at its absolute best. It's so formally interesting. The characters are uh, so complex and deep. and There are, like, you know, what, what, nine main characters in the show. You can take any two of them, spin them off in any plot line, and any combination of characters, like, is a recipe for success. That's a yeah. <laughs> genius way. I it's, it's, it's a genius uh, ensemble because uh, there's not a time where I'm just disappointed in characters teaming up. Like straight up, there's, there's no combination of characters where I like, like, oh man, I wish that so and so was here instead. No, I love I love them all, mm-hmm. and it's it's a, it's also it's a show that's so damaged at its core. It's made by people who clearly have a lot of shame and hurt in their in their hearts and minds, and it really does reflect that in a way that I find very relatable and very moving. And I just have to, you know, put aside the fact that Dan Harmon's pain and shame made him into a terrible boss um, that he's gone on record about and has apologized for in public. However you feel about this is, you know, your choice to make. I still love the show. I have very complex feelings on Dan Harmon. Yeah. But uh, I do think these first three seasons are honestly really fantastic. You know, season four is what it is. Season five, I remember getting feeling way too bitter for its own good. Like, like everybody came back after being rehired for season five, and it felt needlessly nasty and unpleasant to me at the time. We'll see how I feel on a rewatch, and then mm. I'll be up. But you know, community's on Netflix now, so I don't have to worry about Yahoo Screen to watch season <laughs> six. So we'll see how I feel about that ending finally. Yeah, I think you're right that season three is sort of the peak of the show um, because they had they had like really established the the storytelling rhythms by that point, and they knew how far to push the parody stuff and how to embrace the elements of that that really worked for the characters. And like, you know, some of the smaller characters like, like uh, the Dean have become more central in that show or in that season rather. And that, that sort of helps, um, you know, make the the whole thing feel like a fuller, more realized world. Um, And I think, you know, there's so much uh, behind the scenes drama about the making of the show where, you know, 
Chevy Chase and the the splintered relationship that he had with everybody in the cast, and then like the Donald Glover leaving and all of the stuff, you know, the the sort of um, things that the the storytellers couldn't control. Um, all of that, you can kind of feel the weight of that in the later seasons when they like bring other people in to try to like fill those gaps. Um, but season three, I feel like it's still, you know, cooking on, on, uh, operating on all cylinders. So, um, enjoy it while you can Jacob. And then, uh, yeah, I would love to hear what you think, especially of season six, since you've never seen it before. And then like what you think about the prospect of a movie, um, because that they're, it's I, I think it's too late. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well yeah, I, I wonder like what you think narratively about it because of how the, the way that the show actually ends, because I think the, the most recent update was, um, Dan Harmon was like very close to ha- being done with the script before the WGA strike began. And so, and they, they were planning to shoot this summer, which now I'm guessing is not going to happen because they have to finish the script before they start shooting. Um, so, and the movie's going to be like a Peacock original. So um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, six seasons and a movie was like their, their sort of a siren song kind of thing for a long time there. Um, and, and now evidently it's going to happen. I mean, you know, God willing or whatever you want to say, but uh but yeah, I'm curious what you think, like narratively, what that what that connection might look like um, after all those years between the finale and then um, the this movie, whenever it eventually comes out. So yeah, I will say I, I just finished my rewatch. I, if you yesterday, I watched uh, Remedial Chaos Theory, which from oh, season three, such a good episode, which may be in my top five episodes of, of of comedy TV of all time, and would honestly be up there in my you know highly ranked in my favorite sci-fi episodes of TV yeah. of all time. It's a, I think the show. It, it may be the, the absolute best example of what that show can do. Yeah, man. So amazing. Yeah. People talk so much about like the paintball episodes, which are great, but yeah, that remedial uh, chaos theory is like elite stuff. So, <laughs> um, all right. You've been, you've been watching one other thing too, Jacob, that you wanted to talk oh, about. Oh boy. Okay. Do you, do you want to talk about Transformers Rise of the Beast, Ben? I'm never going to see it. So please tell me all about <laughs> it. All right. This is the seventh Transformers movie. The second one, not directed by Michael Bay. And I hate the Transformers movie, Ben. I think that uh, <laughs> two and four are among the worst films I've ever seen in my life. Um, one is watchable. Three is bad, but watchable. Five's bad, but two and four, woof. Um, Bumblebee's fine, but Bumblebee's a really cute, pretty good movie. Um, but Transformers Rise of the Beast from Stephen Capel Jr., who did Creed 2. Uh, what a non-movie. Like, nothing about there's no personality here. The script is just A to B to C. Uh, it's exposition. They say there's an th- item called the transwarp key. And if the transwarp key is not on screen, they're talking about the transwarp key. So I don't it's, wanna... it's this movie's version of the all spark. Yes. Mm. And um, what I liked, Anthony Ramos is, is, is the human, the go-to human. Good. He's really charismatic. He's effective as an action star. I'm sold on him, like leading action stuff, honestly and truly. Um, and strangely enough, uh, Pete Davidson is the voice of Mirage, a new transformer. Uh, I've never liked Pete Davidson in anything until Mirage. He's the first Pete Davidson character I've ever liked, and also the first live-action Transformer character I've ever liked. Um, he's fun, and him and Anthony Ramos actually have a really fun dynamic. But that's where the positive things end. Uh, ben, guess how many sky portals this movie has? Oh God, They're, no, not really. They're, they didn't really bring that back, did they? There are three sky portals. <laughs> uh, there's one at the beginning of the movie in the first twenty minutes. There's one in the climax, and then. They have to use a second sky portal to stop the other sky portal. <laughs> wow. It is a, a, a creatively bankrupt movie. Uh, it is muddy looking. Transformers don't look great still. They all, even with the, you know, 
new, like more eighties esque designs. They still are hard, impossible to tell apart in the action scenes. It is just a, um, a real waste of time. I was, uh, and nothing about it stands out. I have nothing interesting to say. It's not even, he, at some point, the movie is so safe and so vanilla that I found myself longing for the deranged evil chaos of the worst Bay movies. Because wow. those movies are bad. They're bad, Ben. But they are distinctly Michael Bay projects. They are his distinct brand of cocaine-fueled, un-PC, probably racist chaos. <laughs> and Rise of the Beasts has none of that, which is probably good for the world, good for society, but really bad for time with the movies. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, did you see Ambulance, the uh, Michael Bay movie? From I have not seen Ambulance. You, you and Brad keep telling me to watch it. It's pretty good. It's pretty interesting. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal is, is giving another one of his, like, I'm really going for it performances. So I think it's worth watching for that, if for nothing else. But um, but yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sad to hear that, Jacob. I, I feel like we have to talk about one really spoilery thing that happens at the end of this movie. So I know the movie like has only been out for a few hours at this point. It came out last night. Um, if you have not seen Transformers Rise of the Beast yet and you want to and are actually actively interested in it and don't want to know what happens at the end, please uh, pause the show or fast forward to the very end. We still have one more thing to talk about after this. Uh, but okay, final spoiler warning right now uh jacob you got to tell me about this gi joe crossover thing <laughs> the way that it ends well and in the climax anthony Ramos' character uh uses transformers tech to essentially the we're all in spoilers let's so talk spoilers um mirage the, the pete davidson transformer dies but gives over his like um technology to let anthony ramos have this super suit which lets him like fight in the, in the final action scene fight the bad guy and save the world from you know um stuff and yeah um and 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 in, and in the final scene, he's looking. He's, because the whole movie, is he's looking for a job. He's like this unemployed soldier who was, you know, um, too much of a too much of a loose cannon in the military, and so now he can't get hired. You know, <laughs> anywhere else. He goes in for a job interview, and the actor, it's a character actor you would recognize, Ben. I'm going to try to pull up his name. Um, I think it's Michael Kelly. The actor who looks. Exa- I don't, we're going to figure this out if it's Michael Kelly or Zelko Ivanek, actors who literally look identical. Um, and it's kind of it's kind of horrible that we needed to double check this, but they have the exact same face. And he sees me hiring Anthony Ramos' character for a boilerplate job, and says like, you know, we know you saved the world. We know you and your friends did it. And Anthony Ramos is like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. He gives him his card, and then like opens a secret passageway to a giant underground hangar full of all this like advanced technology and a special ship being built. And it looks like you know they're using discovered Transformer technology to do it. And Anthony Ramos flips over the card and it says GI Joe on it. So Hasbro is uh, using Transformers to try to juice G.I. Joe or vice versa because they're both apparently they exist under the same corporate umbrella, which means they can. But there have been three Transformers movies, sorry, three G.I. Joe movies, none of them successes. And the most recent one, Snake Eyes, was a straight up disaster. So uh, <laughs> I forgot about that one. Yeah. So I feel like they're trying to Trojan horse G.I. <laughs> Joe into the Transformers franchise to hopefully goose it and make it into something successful. Ben, I will, I will admit the, the, my audience that I was with, there was a little pop. Some, some the, the, the men of my age definitely have a little <gasps> moment when, when, when this happened. And I'll admit there was a moment, a moment where I was like, Ooh, that's could be interesting. But, in the, but I, after this movie, which is so aggressively boring, I don't look, I want my, my ideal GI Joe movie, Ben 
would be the gayest thing imaginable. Those costumes, <laughs> those characters, uh, you get like Bill Condon or something, the director of G.I. Joe movie, and I'm in. I want people in the most outlandish costumes, the most cartoonish stuff imaginable. I want like full-on live-action cartoon. And I don't think that that's what a G.I. Joe Transformers crossover would be having yeah. seen this movie. So I think this is what people will be talking about. I think people may be excited. I have no faith in it being a good or interesting thing. Yeah, I'm going to, uh, I, I know we have to move on because we have to end the show, but uh, I'm just going to ask you like a thumbs up or thumbs down, Jacob. Like I, I'm probably going to ask Ryan a more detailed version of this uh, next week for like the, based on the box office of how Rise of the Beast does. But do you think this is something that is actually going to happen? Or do you think this is a, the Amazing Spider-Man 2 sort of post credits thing where it like teases a thing that never actually comes to pass? Good question. I think it's going to depend entirely on Rise of the Beast box office, which is tracking to be a really solid opening, but possibly underneath um, Spider-Verse for a second week. Uh, so who knows? I think this movie's going to make money. It's, good. it's not going to be a disaster. Um, but also, I it's a coin flip right now. It's, 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 it's a remedial chaos theory from Community all over again. <laughs> Roll the dice. Let's see what happens. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, let's get into the final thing that we're going to talk about, which is uh, what we've been eating. And uh, you have, have found something, Jacob, that I think you're, you're trying to uh, evangelize for in our Slack channel earlier. Uh, evangelize, maybe not quite, but apologize for, yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I really like Flamin' Hot Cool Ranch Doritos. They're very good. And I want to eat all of them. That's it. That's a that's a weird combo, I have to say, because I I am incredibly late to the flame and hot thing. I think this week was the first time I've ever had a flame and hot Cheeto, uh, and they're very good. Uh, surprise, surprise. Um, but the Cool Ranch doesn't that just like offset the flame and hot? Like, it, <laughs> what's going on there? You would think so. You would think so. It is such an overwhelmingly powerful Doritos flavor. Like once it's in your mouth, it's all you can taste for like an hour afterward. But I'll admit, once I started eating them, I couldn't stop eating them. Like all good chips, it's a very bad problem. And I endorse <laughs> Flamin' Hot Cool Ranch Doritos. <laughs> all right. Well, maybe they can sponsor the show <laughs> coming up in an upcoming episode or something. Um, all right. I think that's going to do it for today's episode of, this, of the show. You can find uh, a lot of the stuff that we talked about at SlashFilm.com. I'm going to link to a few things in the show notes for you to check out there, including the uh, Blu-ray giveaway for Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves. Uh, the Slash Film Show is published two times a week, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next week. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. New year, new credit scores. Chime makes it easier to build credit by using your own money to make on-time payments with a secured Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card. Use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. To apply, just open a Chime checking account with a qualifying direct deposit. There's no annual fee or credit check required when applying. Get started at Chime.com slash build. That's Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Late payment may negatively impact your credit score. Results may vary.